If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. This episode of Philosophy for Our Times was recorded live at the Institute of Art and Ideas annual festival, How the Light Gets In. How the Light Gets In is the world's largest philosophy and music festival and it takes place in the idyllic setting of Hay on Wye. Early bird tickets have just gone on sale for How the Light Gets In 2018 and we would love for you to join us. For more information and tickets, see the IAI website at iai.tv. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts of assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Neuroscience now tells us more about the mind than philosophy. Or maybe if we modified, it might or may well or will tell us more about the mind than philosophy. In other words, can neuroscience settle philosophical debates about the mind? But let's um, begin at the beginning and introduce the panel. Margaret Bowden is Research Professor of Cognitive Science at the University of Sussex. The New York Times says she is at the forefront of efforts to exorcise Cartesian superstition. Stephen Rose is Emeritus Professor of Neurobiology at the Open University and author of The Making of Memory. And Barry Smith, uh, on the far left, is Director of the Institute of Philosophy at the School of Advanced Study at the University of London. Right, as we say in Cumberland, let's get gan. Uh, first of all, with Margaret Bowden, if you could outline in uh, four minutes your view about this basic proposition. Neuroscience uh, can, in principle, and already has in a few cases, made philosophers who are prepared to listen think again and perhaps change some of their views about the mind. And I suppose one of the examples of that is the experiments on split brain, where you cut through the corpus callosum, which connects both sides of the brain, and uh, you find that you get behavior rather like a, a split personality. And so... Certainly, I don't want to say that even current neuroscience is irrelevant to philosophy. But I think that current fad in neuroscience of brain scanning, brain imaging, is almost totally irrelevant. I actually think it's of uh, almost no scientific interest whatsoever. It's mostly 
non-scientific fishing expeditions, trying to find correlations between psychological events, like, I don't know, thinking about God, for example, or whatever it may be, psychological events on the one hand and brain events on the other hand. And sometimes they appear to find such correlations. But there are two very big buts, even if they find the correlations. The first is they don't know what they're correlating in the brain because they're getting at, for example, both excitatory neurons and inhibitory neurons. So neurons that are antagonistic in their functions. So all they can say is, this part of the brain is buzzing, but just exactly what's going on, they have no way of saying. I'm not saying this will always be true, but certainly with the current technology, I think that's true. But there's a bigger but, a second but, which is that these are what I called non-scientific fishing expeditions. They aren't driven by theory about what's actually going on, about what the brain is doing. I once actually said this, I said to uh, Chris Frith, who was one of the first, and in my view, one of the very, very best people in, in brain imaging. I said to him, I think 95% of the brain scanning stuff is a complete waste of time. And he said, no, no, no. 98. <laughs> That's a true story. So one of these days, and I don't think it's going to be soon at all, it may be possible for people um, thinking more theoretically about these matters to fit these correlations, and of course lots of other correlations which we will then have, in. And I think that the neuroscientists, what they should be doing, and what Chris Frith does in his best work, is starting out with some sort of theory about what the functions are that the brain cells are doing and use those questions to guide just what they're looking at in the brain. In other words, I don't think neuroscientists can ask the right questions unless they're guided by some sort of psychological theory. A theory which is guided by the concepts of computation and artificial intelligence. And so, for instance, some of the work that Chris Frith has done, interesting work in brain scanning, has shown facts about the brains of autistic people uh, being different in a certain way from the brains of non-autistic people. And he was driven to look for that evidence because of the psychological theory that autism is based in a lack of so-called theory of mind. So, in sum, I would say neuroscience, of course, it's in principle relevant, it's already taught us something of interest to philosophy. Maybe one of these days it will be in a position to teach us lots more, but not unless it changes its current approach and comes in with much more useful theoretical ideas about what the brain is doing as opposed to just how it is doing it. Let's turn to uh, someone who is a neuroscientist himself, Stephen Rose. Most of my neuroscientific colleagues are actually committed to the view, indeed, that the mind is the brain, there's a sharp reductionist position in which minds are to be reduced to brain, um, nothing but the froth, or nothing but one of Maggie's philosopher colleagues calls folk psychology, which can be replaced, as she wants to argue, by the concept of a computational brain. Now, some of what she said I agree with. That 98% of it is irrelevant is probably true for most of the scientific papers that are published throughout the world today, and a lot of it is irreproducible as well. But that's not the point I want to make. 
I want to disagree both with my neuroscientific colleagues that the mind is the brain and with what Maggie has just, just said in relationship to the computational brain. I do not think that either minds or brains are computational. We are not digital systems. We are at best analogic systems and not computable in the way that Maggie is talking about. I want to argue that we need our brains in order to have minds in the same way as we need our legs in order to walk. But we do not say our legs are walking, we say I am walking. We do not say, or we should not say, our brains are thinking. We should say I am thinking and using my brain in order to think. That the brain is a necessary organ so far as thinking, so far as minding is concerned, I take completely for granted. But I do not think that the activities of learning, thinking, minding, and certainly being conscious are reducible to brain processes. And let me explain why. I've already said because, I, because it is I, the self, which is doing these activities with our brain. But I want to go further. It's not just that brains are embodied, but bodies and brains are embedded in the social and cultural world in which we live. And because they are embedded in the social and cultural world that we live, the activity of minding, and here I go along with the philosopher Gilbert Ryle, who said that you should not use mind as a noun, but you should use it as a, as a verb. It's an activity. Minding is what is going on in the conversations between us on the panel, in the discourse which is going on between us and all of you. And mind is therefore a social phenomenon. It's almost a collective phenomenon. Our minds are constituted by, certainly by biology, certainly by our evolutionary history, certainly by the fact also that we live in particular societies, in particular cultures, and particular times. Minds are profoundly changed by the society and the technology in which we live. The minds of my, not just my, my grandchildren, but also my children, who brought up in a digital age, are different from mine in ways which are constituted both by brain processes and both, both by the social culture and technology in which we exist. So, to sum up in the last five seconds, we have minds, we have brains, we need brains to have minds, but minds are not and are not reducible to brains. Four minutes, oh, three seconds. <laughs> right, Barry Smith, your four minutes. So the heresy I think that we're interested in is the idea that neuroscience might replace philosophy. And here's the worry, I think, for philosophers and probably for all of us. The worry is that there are certain things we're interested in explaining, what it's like to be conscious beings, what it's like now to see me and hear me, to be enjoying your moods and feelings and emotions. And people who are interested in that, the nature of experience, they're worried that when they turn to neuroscience, instead of having that explained, that neuroscience might change the subject. So there's this worry that when you turn to neuroscience, if you're asking a philosophical question, you might be changing the subject. Now here's the heresy from my point of view. We need to change the subject because quite often philosophers are starting with common sense ideas that are wrong and misleading. So for example, in the field that I work, we started off taking our theories of perception and the way we explore the world is based on the idea that we have five senses. Now, Aristotle gave us the talk of five senses, and it's been preserved till now. But if you ask neuroscientists how many senses have we got, they say anywhere between 22 and 33. 
Another thing is that a lot of philosophers have started with the idea that when we talk about mind, we're talking about the conscious mind and that the things that we decide and do, the things that govern our, our lives are coming from conscious experience. And if anything, the work that we can look at in really rather good neuroimaging experiments can tell us that our sense of being in control, of directing the traffic, of choosing, is actually not quite right. And one of the things neuroscience has done is dethrone consciousness, show us it's not at the center of all of our activities. Some very nice experiments you can do where you have people with their hand hidden drawing circles and then looking on the screen in front of them uh, is the circle they think they're drawing. If you change the circle to make it bigger on the screen than their hand is doing, their hand will start making bigger circles, but they will still think they're creating the shape on the screen. So we take ownership and responsibility for things we're not actually doing that automatic systems are doing. <laughs> now finally, Maggie said that um, we get virtually nothing of significance out of uh, neuroimaging. Here's a very significant finding. So Adrian Owen and colleagues have been scanning, when they can, patients in persistent vegetative state. Now, when you scan them, you find there's very, very little activity going on there. Everything seems to be virtually dark inside. But Adrian knew that if you ask people to imagine playing tennis, it lights up when you imagine playing tennis, as if you were almost engaging in the activity. Now, with these patients, about a quarter of them, he says to them, I'm going to ask you some questions, and if the answer is yes, I want you to imagine playing tennis. And when they imagine playing tennis, these patients too light up a bit of the motor cortex, and Adrian then asks them questions that he knows the answer to. Is your husband's name John? Have you been to China? And he gets consistently correct answers they start imagining playing tennis when the answer is yes and not when the answer is no. That's a form of communication with people who are cut off from us in every other sense that we couldn't have unless we had neuroimaging. Now, some people think this has got moral implications. People say, well, oh, now we know that we shouldn't turn off the life support systems for such people. How do we know that? Maybe if that's what you're reduced to, immobility, somebody communicating with you by neuroimaging every three or four months. Maybe you actually do want them to turn off the life support system. So morally, everything is left the same, but we wouldn't be able to ask those ethical questions if we didn't have these neuroscientific techniques to find out what's going on in the brain. Right, okay. Can we deal then initially with this question of what constitutes the mind? Stephen said it's an activity. Margaret, is that? I agree with that. The one way of saying that is what the functionist philosophers used to say. They said the mind is what the brain does, basically. I think that's absolutely right. But, I mean, another that's way of putting it, and I mean, Stephen's not going to like this. It was Stephen said it was more than that, didn't he? It was well, a whole... yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, none of that is, in, is inconsistent in any way with what I would say. And I would say that the mind is what computer scientists call the virtual machine, that's running on the brain. And that again supports everything Stephen said about not being reductionist. I agree with everything he said, except about the analog digital thing. I mean, nothing that I said depends upon it being digital, but I don't want to get into that. But I mean, I don't think that my sort of functionalism, if you like, 
is inconsistent with anything you said and certainly not inconsistent with the emphasis on society and culture and so forth. Well, do you agree with that, Stephen? No, I don't. I'd like to agree with it because I'm deeply fond of Maggie and I think she's made a huge contribution to this field, but I don't entirely agree with it. Coming back to something that, that, that Barry said, and that is, he said, neuroscience has dethroned consciousness. I do think our Sigmund was saying something about consciousness before neuroscientists got into it. And that actually sort of is part of the problem that we face. What neuroscientists have done, and I confess, I wanted a bit of mea culpa here to start with. As a young neuroscientist, I wrote a book called The Conscious Brain. How wrong was I? The brain is not conscious, people are conscious to re reduce mind or consciousness to, to a property of the brain, even as Maggie just said there, so the, the mind is what the brain does. No, the mind is what we do using our brain. And that seems to me to be a profound and extremely important difference. And one of the problems is that neuroscientists have picked up this idea of consciousness. It was hard enough when I started working on memory, which is a particularly tricky topic. But by the last 15 or 20 years, Neuroscientists have picked up the idea of consciousness. It's significant in this context that one of the people who first um, started consciousness studies for neuroscientists, a man called Stuart Hameroff, who works with Roger Penrose, is an anaesthetist. That is, for him, consciousness is being awake and not asleep. In the same way as for Freud, conscious and unconscious are two different bits of the way that our minds and our brains actually work. And for me, consciousness is a phenomenon which is expressed, as I'm trying to say, collectively like this. So we have many different ways of talking about consciousness. And one of the real problems, and here I think Maggie is absolutely right, we don't have a theory. We don't have a theory even of the brain, let alone of the mind. When 40,000 neuroscientists meet every year at the Society for Neuroscience in the States, they can't talk past one another because we're lacking theory. And until there is a theory of the brain, let alone of the theory of the mind, I think neuroscientists, um, me included, should know our place. Let me uh, bring in Barry here. I haven't heard your definition of the mind. Could you give it? What do you think it is? Sure. Well, I mean, I've, I think, although we've been talking about how there is no such thing to refer to singly as the mind, uh, my two distinguished panelists have gone on talking about the mind. We have to look at mental capacities. We have to break it down a little bit. So we have to look at perceiving. We have to look at uh, affective states, emotional states. We have to look at memory. We have to look at the architecture of the mind. We've actually got to break it down into its component parts. And it's only by doing experiments that we can see whether uh, those parts really are articulated the way we think they are. For example, is memory a single faculty where you can remember things in words, in pictures, in, in smells, no, very likely not, that we have dedicated odor memories that last longer, more enduring, give us the Proust phenomenon where it takes us back to our childhood. Quite a different memory system. Similarly, you might ask whether imagination in the other senses is the same as visual imagination, probably not. And again, we think we've got a spatial sense of seeing the world. You have spatial information when you hear things happening to your left or to your right. Are we representing space in the same way? I think you have to work both conceptually and philosophically to ask what these different capacities are and then do some very serious experiments to find out whether or not we're conflating things or we need to distinguish some and of these capacities. What are the capacities of? Look, when the brain is functioning normally, as I hope it is for all of you, if not, um, enjoy, you will be able to do many, many things simultaneously. You're seeing and hearing us talk. 
you're feeling the seat underneath you. You might even have a taste in your mouth if you have coffee. There's a lot going on simultaneously, including your thoughts and memories and reflections and feelings. Now, those capacities are supported by the brain, and we might think that you know, everything in the mind is inside the head, but these capacities extend outside the head in terms of seeing into the world, in terms of responding to people out there who affect us. And you can lose the mind without losing your head. I mean, we know as you see people deteriorate because of brain neurodegeneration, those capacities start to switch off. You start to lose memory, you start to lose vision, you start to lose hearing. So it's the well-functioning brain that supports our ability to do all of this. And when we've mapped the capacities, that's what we mean by the mind. Convinced? Well, I understand about capacities, but I think quite a lot of the problems arise simply because we use terms which are undefined across contexts. I mean, memory is a very good one. You've said, is memory one thing? No, I mean, you know they can have procedural memory, semantic memory, episodic memory. These may have different brain processes associated with them, but we have a linguistic problem, and the language we use does not map either onto brain processes or to the complexity of our own minding activities. So we use one word for memory, and even if you look within the neurosciences themselves, those people at the molecular level who've spent their lives, like I have, working on memory, have a totally different understanding of the memory processes and the memory mechanisms than the, the, not just the systems neuroscientists and indeed than cognitive psychologists. We use words which seem to mean the same thing but do not. And that's, I think, why Maggie's so absolutely right. We have a, a theoretical deficit. We're data rich and theory poor. And that's a very problematic place to be in. Are, are you saying, in a sense, that we might as well stop neuroscience until we work this out? I'm not saying that, Roger, because I'm not saying there isn't a lot that neuroscientists can do. I mean, it is useful to understand the biochemical mechanisms that are associated and go wrong in the devastating neurological condition like Alzheimer's. It's not useful to actually sort of try to understand what goes on in the brain of Tony Blair when he launches an illegal war in Iraq or Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, that's a different, that's a, a different order of discussion. Allegedly illegal. So, <laughs>Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. I must go on to this second area to ask about whether neuroscience can make progress now in resolving, helping us resolve any of the big philosophical issues, notwithstanding all the reservations that we've heard. Can you point, Mark, to a subject, an area where you think neuroscience can assist us? Well, I already gave one example, which is the work that shows that autistic people who, according to the current psychological theory, psychological, notice, psychological theory of autism, is due to some sort of deficit in what psychologists call theory of mind. And what theory of mind is, is the capacity 
to use concepts like belief, intention, purpose, and so forth, of yourself and other people, and to realize that each one of us sitting in this room is an agent, is something we absolutely take for granted. We, because we're deeply social animals, we couldn't function in the way we do unless we had theory of mind. The implication of that is that if you are an autistic person, you don't have the sort of psychological concepts that I mentioned, I gave you a few examples, uh, that all of us use in everyday life. Neuroscientists went and did the experiments, and they found in both cases that the answer was yes, that's right. It is the case that different parts of the brain apparently are active when we're using those sorts of verbs, then we're using other sorts of verbs, and it is the case apparently that autistic people show virtually no or certainly very much reduced activity in those parts of the brain. So, so Margaret, some people say what you've done in describe is, is a medical condition, not a philosophical conundrum. Is oh, that fair? But I no, I don't think it's fair. Uh, I mean, you call it a medical condition. It's also a very, very distressing human condition which challenges our notion of uh, what it is to be a human agent. Because we normally assume that a human being has this understanding you, you, about you, themselves you start, and other people. You started your four minutes by saying that imaging couldn't tell us anything at all useful, and you've now cited an imaging experiment which you say does show something useful. Oh, yes, I, now, I think she said in 1997. But I would put what you said... I don't think it helps us understand autism to know which bits of the brain light up under those circumstances. So I think that philosophy or philosophical problems posed can be very interesting to neuroscientists, but I don't think what the neuroscientist does with showing X or Y bit of the brain lights up tells us anything of any interest to answer the philosophical can question. Can I try something else then? I mean, we are data rich. There's a welter of results and information. But what you need is philosophers to be in there working alongside neuroscientists. They have to be empirically informed. They can't just comment from the outside without knowing what the methods are. And if neuroscientists have got an ear open and are listening, then there are theoretical gains they can have. What would they be? Well, one thing is that you know, philosophers for a long time have wondered about what is the self. Now, neuroscience is very good at getting at something related. That is... We all have a sense of self. It doesn't follow we have a self, but we might have a sense of self, and that's, that's pretty strong. But what does it consist in? Well, instead of thinking it's some irresolvable single thing, a kind of closing your eyes and having a hum moment, you can look at how your sense of self depends on bodily awareness. It depends on a sense of ownership of your limbs. These, these are, this is my body. This is the extent of it. This is where I begin and end. A sense of agency. When I reach for that cup, it's me who's doing it. It's my action. Now, we use, as Roger said, medical conditions to cast light on, to cast light back on the normal case from the pathological case. You can have people who lose their sense of ownership for their limbs. So they, they say, that's not my arm. They can have feelings in it, but they say, it's not my arm. Whose arm is it? It's maybe my husband's or it's maybe the doctor's. And that's because they've got parietal damage uh, neurologically. And then there are other people who, yes, they feel it's their arm, but they feel it's not under their control. When I suddenly reach for the cup, I say, it wasn't me who did that. Now, what's very nice is that you've got very detailed neurological explanations of the difference between a sense of agency and a sense of ownership. But it was a philosopher 
Sean Gallagher, who actually made, drew that distinction because people used to just think, well, if it's your limb, you own it, you feel it, you move it. But by distinguishing these, you then find out that there were different neurological causes of a sense of agency and a sense of ownership. Now, here's a philosophical problem that has been changed by this result. Wittgenstein said, a man could not be in pain and wonder whose pain it is. It was conceptually impossible. It was just obvious that if you felt a pain, then you knew it was yours. But take one of these patients with parietal damage. You can stab their hand with a pin. You can say, is there pain? And they say, yes. You say, whose pain is it? And they say, I don't know. But that doesn't alter the fact it, of whose pain it is. It, it's all, all just about the person's perception it's the of sense, ownership, it's not the about sense, the reality of ownership. Correct. It's the sense of self we're talking about, not self. But what's interesting about that is philosophers used to think it was enough to feel something to know it was yours. Also, they used to think, Descartes famously, it was enough to think something to know it was I who thinks. But there are also patients who have thought insertion, not the same as hearing voices. They imagine that thoughts are being broadcast into their mind that are not theirs. So, look, to have a sense of who you are, it's not enough to feel, it's not enough to think. Another step has to be taken to claim ownership of those thoughts and those feelings. And we didn't know that that was a component of the whole story. So we've changed the philosophical landscape a lot. Can I move on to the final section before we come to the audience to anticipate the potential of neuroscience in the future in terms of answering philosophical questions? What is the potential 20, 30 years down the line, do you think, in terms of philosophy? It depends what you regard as philosophical questions which are appropriate to answer. And it seems to me also important in this context, particularly listening to Barry's very clear exposition of the issue of the self, to recognize the extent to which the idea of a self, the idea of an individual self, is very much a culture-bound step context. It doesn't necessarily have the same meaning in cultures other than Western possessive individualist, neoliberal capitalist cultures that we have at the moment, where there's a huge emphasis on precisely this individualism. So I would want to go back one stage to recognize that the very philosophical questions that we ask, which seem self-evident to us because of the way in which we're brought up and the, the cultures in which we live, that we can talk about I, we can talk about a self and so on, and just be a little reflective about the way that other cultures and other societies, and here anthropology is extremely interesting, sociology is extremely interesting. So we step back to ask what are the philosophical questions, um, and that then leads us to questions about, for example, whether there are universal aspects of morality or of moral feelings in which we can ask, say, well, can neuroscience actually address those questions? I think we can learn a huge amount from the development of neuroscience and the development of evolutionary theory, but I think we're always going to have to put what is coming out of that, um, apart from the potential medical advances, apart from all the arguments about neuroprotheses. Barry asked me as we were coming, uh, cu coming along whether I felt that I had a sense of possession of my stick so I could actually sense the end of the stick as I was walking through the mud. That's a very interesting question and it's one that I think neuroscience can potentially approach. But I don't think it answers the fundamental questions which philosophy has always tried to answer, which is who am I, why am I here, and sort of and what is the nature of good and evil in the world. And I think those are out with 
what neuroscientists can speak of. Margaret, what's your view about the potential of neuroscience in either answering or eliminating philosophical questions? Well, I would agree with what Stephen just said. I think it can't answer uh, those questions, partly because I think that science in general can't answer philosophical questions, but I did, did say, and I do think, that it can sometimes inform them and change them, and you gave some examples. But in particular, some of the questions which uh, Stephen was referring to, I mean, science cannot justify any statement that X is good and Y is evil. I think that science, up to a point, can explain, A, why it is that we have a distinction between good and evil, and up to a point it can explain the huge similarities that do exist between certainly many, arguably all human cultures, about certain specific judgments about what is good and what is evil, but it absolutely cannot, in principle, justify, in the valuative sense, somebody who says, X is good, X is evil. Even if the X in, in, in question is something which, in evolutionary terms, you might say is very, uh, very uh, sensible. For instance, the notion that killing other people in general is wrong. You might say, well, that makes all sorts of evolutionary sense. Well, so it does, but uh, that doesn't prove that it is wrong. It's a different level of concepts, and as Stephen said, it's very much linked up with and grounded in um, our societies, cultures, and the fact that we're social beings, and not even sociology, as a, considered as a science, can justify that judgment. It's a different conceptual level. Barry, your view about the potential of neuroscience for clarifying or helping to resolve philosophical problems? I think it, it gives us new philosophical questions. It, a lot of philosophy has been in the market of trying to explain the same thing for over two and a half thousand years, with very little progress. I mean, if, if we're talking about the 98% of uselessness in neuroscience, I wouldn't like to give a figure on the uselessness of philosophical theorizing. It's pretty high, folks, you know. We're, we're very good at refuting last year's fashionable view, but we're not very good at putting up something that sticks. So, um, how's philosophy to make progress? By not trying to answer questions that are misformulated because we've got the data wrong to begin with. So, neuroscience, we talked about that with the senses, or show us how we get the right explanation. You know, we think the senses work independently. We see and we hear and we smell, and they're all independent. Not true. In fact, when you're listening to me speak, you're aided by seeing my lips move, and we know this because you can do a very nice experiment where you watch the lips making the sound of ga, while auditorily you're hearing the sound of ba, and what you quote here is da somewhere in between ba and ga, something you neither saw nor heard. So in fact, do you partly hear with the eyes? And the answer is yes. So we will change the data, but do we still need philosophers to intervene? And that's why I think we do. We need bi-directional working, yes, because the headline that we all know about is the work on free will. So Liebitz experiments were supposed to show us that instead of making a conscious decision, then the brain activating and then the behavioral action following, Liebitz showed that the brain starts to ramp up, then there's the conscious decision, then there's the action. And so people said, so we don't have free will. No, philosophical mistake. You're equating free will 
with the moment of consciously letting yourself off the trigger to perform something you intended to do all along, Leibniz's experiment just asks you when you're ready to raise your finger. Now, when did you intend to do that? And the answer is when you agreed to take part in the experiment. Free will is not disrupted by these phenomena, but we better be philosophically aware of them if we're to explain them properly. Well, we're having to come to the end of this, I, I don't do a rather absurd thing, to be honest, is to ask each one of them to leave you with one point, one thing they want you to think about before we, uh, as you go around the rest of hay. And what would that be in your terms? Philosophy is too important to be left to the neuroscientists. <laughs> Margaret? Uh, how is it possible for us to do the things that we do that psychologists talk about has to be answered in terms of the sorts of information processing functions that the brain is doing. What are they? Right. If we're going to get a sense of who we are and what we can do, then we need philosophers and neuroscientists to work together. We don't want neuroscientists being amateur philosophers and we don't want philosophers being amateur scientists. They each contribute. And we'll need many people in there if we're going to explain this complex phenomenon. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag neuroscience versus philosophy. If you enjoyed this talk, check out Did Science Kill Philosophy, which you can watch on the IAI TV player. We always love to hear feedback, so please do email us on podcast at iai.tv. For more episodes, subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher for more big ideas on the go.